had it throughout the Gospels. But Mark, I think, brings it out very poignantly and very succinctly. The fact that the um, disciples don't quite fully get Jesus. I know that our Sunday school churchy view of it is that, you know, the little pictures and Jesus calls the disciples and they're all together and they're all happy and, 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 and then at the end there's a little angst there with Judas, but pretty much they're all on board, except they, you know, Peter, des, you know, deserts him and stuff. But basically, if you really read the Gospels kind of honestly, you see that the people don't get him, the religious establishment doesn't get him, and those closest to him don't quite understand him. And in our narrative this morning that we read for our scripture reading out of Mark 1 through 11, and in Luke's account as well, which I'll use for our message today, um, this day, and in and, and, and doing Palm Sunday, we, we've, we always praise and we always worship. We do, right? And sometimes Palm Sunday is trivialized because it's made to be just about praise Exuberance, as, as one writer stated, it becomes for us as Christians a kind of pre-Easter. It is almost as triumphant and as joyous and happy. And in reality, the triumphal entry and the things surrounding Palm Sunday are not quite as, as uh, unreservedly joyous as that. In other words, there, there is irony involved with this whole story. Because in Mark's gospel, Jesus goes into Jerusalem and immediately looks around and goes out. And in others, they don't give you quite that picture. Uh, but the point is that um, he, th the people are cheering him. But we have to address and, and, and ask why they are cheering him, why they are crying out Hosanna. This is religious language. This is part of their liturgy. This is... These are words from the Psalter. These are words that are familiar to their lips, and they, they express the cry of the heart of the masses with regard to Jesus. But it's not that the crowds in this moment yet get what we will get on Easter Sunday morning. You don't understand what I'm saying? And there, there are a lot of people in their journey uh, that readily praise and worship Jesus because in that moment they feel what you feel, but they don't quite get what you get because they haven't been through what you've been through and, they have, and have not seen the story play out and they haven't come to understand what God's agenda really is. They just know what theirs is and they found a place where they can kind of vent that and it makes you feel good. A lot of praise and worship that goes on in, 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 in our culture under the guise of Christian, you know, Christianity. Uh, much of it obviously is wonderful and, and spirit-inspired and good, but there are a lot of folks that just are on the bandwagon because they got this cry and this need in their heart, and that might apply to some of you. you got this need in your heart, it's like, wow, yo, yay, yay, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then you realize, well, there's a little bit more of a process that has to go through. And what I'm thinking I want and what I think I need isn't what he's going to tell me I need. And when and we say, oh, Hosanna, say, you know, Lord, save us, we're thinking, you know, in their case, thinking, oh, Jesus, save us, you know, conquering king, coming on a on a colt and, and, and Mark on a donkey coming on a, on, on, a, on a beast coming as a king coming to break the, uh, uh, the, the back of, of, of the Roman establishment that has is, that is occupied our land and, and robbed us of our freedom that is oppressing us he's coming as a political leader who's going to free us from the shackles of, of that kind of political and, and civil and social bondage and that's what we really need and they're going to learn Jesus is going to let them know, and he's going to, in, in short order, that that's not my agenda. I, because how many of you know that? I, I know, 
And, and you know, if you remember the term felt needs, it's not like do you need a felt pen, but it's like the needs that people feel. And felt needs are important. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of need uh, kind of helps us to understand that basically there are these basic needs like people need to, things like food and sleep. And if you're hungry, I mean, some of you might be hungry this morning because you skipped breakfast, but you haven't skipped too many meals. And so believe me, in, by faith, you can get through this message and you probably won't pass out. But a person who is really dealing with genuine hunger, a person who is malnourished, a person who is chronically, who has this kind of chronic low blood sugar because they just don't, they're not eating and they're just always, and a person whose needs are unmet, a person who, has, who can't, has, is not sleeping well, they, they, they probably aren't so ready to hear a whole lot of preaching and to get, deal with a whole lot of high order thinking and a lot of other stuff. And it goes up, there are other needs that kind of build on top of that until you get to the, the higher needs of, of, of self-fulfillment and self-actualization. Uh, and we, we, you know, and so that's real, that's real. But, but on, on the other hand, our felt need is not always our real need. Some of you thought you needed a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You found out you needed something from God to do something in your life that was different than that. Some of you thought you needed another drink, and you found out that what you needed is a, is is the is to in the words of scripture to not be drunk with wine but be filled with the holy spirit and to to experience the blessing of god some of you thought that you needed you needed uh an ego boost you thought that that new car with that certain label would would give you just enough boost in your self-esteem to kind of kind of take away the blues and you found out that when you got the car note that the blues only intensified, and when you, when you realized that then your insurance was going to go up and your registration was going to go up, and that, you know, if you had a Ford, an oil change was $49.99, but for the one you got, it's $259.99. Because you, that's what you thought you needed, but what you needed wasn't that. And sometimes people think that all we need is, is just social liberty, and we do need to deal with issues of social justice. We do need to deal with issues of liberation. We do need to deal with issues of freedom. But sometimes there, there are deeper needs that God will help us understand are more important. We, we think that we need one thing. And so what happens is that um, Jesus, we read, read earlier together Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And in Luke's gospel, in verse 38 of chapter 19, uh, they, they shout, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then verse 39, that's why we were, we were able to... Man, we had a good time singing that song this morning, but he said, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I'll tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry. In other words, praise to me, Jesus is saying, is a, it is appropriate and it is, it, is, it is so natural and so right within the natural order, within the universe that God has created that if you don't praise me, all of God's creation will praise me because that's who I am. It's a bold statement what Jesus says. And so the, the, the juxtaposition and the, the challenge begins at verse 41 because all the people are shouting and praising God and excited about Jesus riding into the city and Jesus, you know, uh, the one that the parade is in honor of, right, the one that this is all thrown for, uh, he's kind of, as you read forward, he, he's kind of depressed. Kind of like 
Can you imagine a, a, a set of, you know, the Hollywood Christmas parade? Have you all ever been to that? Uh, no, none of you. Okay, uh, the Crenshaw Christmas parade? Is there one? <laughs> the, the Compton? I don't know. But can you imagine, you know, and at the end of the parade, who do you see? I, I do these, these Christmas gigs. I do a lot of, I do stuff for Mattel, right? And, uh, with these singers. And, uh, so, you know, you always have the, the, these little events for kids in the community and, you do some things at the Children's Hospital at UCLA. But you, uh, the culmination is always some dude in a Santa suit. Ho, ho, ho. You know, and, and, you know, there's a parade. At the end of the parade, here comes the sleigh on, you know, car tires, right? Being with fake reindeer in the front. And then there's the jolly old elf, St. Nick. And so, and he, you expect when they have a Christmas parade, right, that Santa Claus is the one that's, you know, ho, 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 thank you, thank you. You know, you know, because he's in charge, right? He said, you've been naughty or nice. I'm the one handing out the toys here, right? But can you imagine a, uh, can you imagine a, a Christmas parade featuring Santa Claus, as it were, and, and at the end, you're looking for Santa, and Santa's somewhere over in the corner in tears. And now in our culture, we would say, okay, that's one of those drunk Santas, <laughs> and he's having a bad day. But you get, it, it, it is ironic. It, it, it doesn't fit the situation. Jesus ends up crying. He ends up weeping here uh, because he knows that within a few days, the shouts of Hosanna, the praise and the worship and all of that stuff, they will turn, won't they, to what? Crucify him. Crucify him. But the thing that we've got to realize is this, is that Jesus isn't crying for himself. Jesus isn't crying because of the pain and the humiliation that he is going to face. He's not crying because of the agony that he must endure. He's not crying because of the suffering, the inevitable suffering that, that is looming you know, before him. But he is weeping because of what Jerusalem's rejection of him will mean for them. He's weeping because of the fact that they have failed to understand the day of God's visitation. They've failed to understand the purpose and the point of what God is doing through him. They've failed to receive and to accept the offer that God is extending to them through him. And that's what he's weeping about. And man, I, I think that, and say, I know that Jesus still, still weeps. Because Jesus is, was not, we, we don't say Jesus was fully God and fully human, but Jesus is. And Jesus has been touched and is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. And the Holy Spirit can be grieved and God has emotions. Our triune God has personal, is a personality, three personalities, three persons in, in, one, in one God, God in three persons. And I believe that Jesus weeps today when we miss the point. When we miss opportunities, when we fail to, to avail ourselves of things that He has died to give us, when we fail to, to receive the, the gifts that He's placed before us, when we totally, sometimes we totally misunderstand what He's saying to us, we totally miss what He's about, we totally miss what He's trying to do in our midst or in our lives, we totally, we, we, and sometimes we sell Him so short with regard to His ability and His, and, and, and his power to bring about change in our situation. And I believe that, in a sense, Jesus weeps now. But Jesus weeps because of the city's rejection of him and what it will mean to him. In verse 41 through 44, this is what he says. Listen up. He says, And when he drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, right, he wept over it. Verse 42, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because, and catch these words, you did not know the time of your visitation. Get that? He's speaking to Jerusalem, not so much for their hearing, but to those who are around him, and he's speaking prophetically. And we know that in 70 A.D., not too long after Jesus' death and resurrection, a few decades later that the Romans did indeed totally desecrate and destroy the temple in Jerusalem. And this is not, by the way, the first time that the people of Jerusalem have missed God's peace, God's peace, the peace that he wanted to bring to them. In Isaiah 30, Jerusalem was being threatened by Assyria. And uh, what happened was many of the small nations around Jerusalem, they had made alliances with Egypt to protect them from Assyria. That sounds like a good idea, right? And people in Jerusalem also wanted to put their trust in Egypt as well for their protection instead of God. Now you know that if you, know, if you read the Old Testament know anything about Israel, you understand that God was their king, though they ended up wanting to have human kings. God, they were a theocracy under the kingship, under the, the, the rulership, the, the headship of God, of God Almighty. And we understand that God, that God led them in, in victory. God took care of them and he wanted that relationship with them. And Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 30, verses 15 through 17. He says, this is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Therefore, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. You said we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. The threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Jerusalem wanted to trust in Egypt's horses. Egypt had military technology, if you will. Horses were kind of like the, the military tanks of their day. So if, if a nation had a lot of horses, they, that, that was, that was the, equated with military power, might, and strength. And they were looking to Egypt to say, wow, if we can trust the, the if we can get Egypt to, to back us up, if we can make an alliance with Egypt. But God says, no, you know what? It's only when you trust in me quietly and gently, when you will, when you will look to me in stillness, it's only then that you will have true peace. You think you'll get peace through the way that you've, in your mind, set out to, to get peace, which is, you know, to strike an alliance with, with, with Egypt. He says, but peace is only in me. You'll only get it here. Now, sometimes they got it right. Psalm 20. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. That psalm proclaims, he said, listen, we understand that there's some people that are trusting in, in, in technology. There's some people that are trusting in military power and might. In a more simple sense, we could say that if it replied to us, there are some people that trust in human ingenuity and human strength and human resources. And he says, no, we understand where our help comes from. We trust 
in the Lord. We, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We, we, we figured this thing out and realized that it's not in chariots and horses and in all that stuff. We trust in God. Now, in Jesus' time, the Romans had occupied Palestine, and so they ran Jerusalem. And a lot of the events around both Jesus' birth and his death and everything in between is, is, is peppered with all of these references to these various political entities that are, are in power and the struggle that Israel is, the, uh, is, 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 is experiencing in the midst of this occupation and the, the tenuous and strange relationship between the Jewish rulers and the Roman, and the Roman government. And so there was what was called a Pax, P-A-X is the word, Romana, which was the peace of Rome. During this time uh, in the known world there, in the, among the, the Roman Empire, which was quite large and quite spread out, uh, there was this thing called the Pax Romana. There was this, there was this kind of, of, of widespread universal peace that existed. And it was a peace that existed because of the strength of the Roman military and the strength of force that could be easily employed to, to quell any opposition and anything that would disrupt that peace. And so as long as nobody got out of line, as long as nobody tried to say anything, as long as nobody did anything inappropriate, Rome was very restrained in using her force. And everybody could go along. And you, you read the book of Acts, you see Paul, the apostle himself, was a Roman citizen and was able to, uh, was able to uh, use his Roman citizenship to great advantage in, in his ministry and, and ultimately ended up in Rome, which he believed and which was revealed to be the will of God for him. He ends up in Rome and, and uh, awaiting trial. And we know that Paul, history tells us, was ultimately executed because of the gospel, but he, he was a Roman citizen, and we see that interaction. And it was, it was a time of peace, but historians probably would, would describe it as what we would call an uneasy peace. I mean, does that sound like, I mean, martial law, does that sound like peace? If police was that the police, or the police, or some of, I hate it when people say the popo. Oh, God. If, if we only had police because we've got officers with shotguns and AR-15 standing on each corner, and as long as you go to the store and come back and go to your house and get on the bus, and it's cool. That's not necessarily the kind of peace that I want to experience. If we only have peace through heightened control, it was a certain peace, but it was an uneasy peace. And while, while the Pharisees and the other leaders stirred up the crowd against Jesus on on. on, on on, this fri on the Friday because of jealousy. And we always think that the whole opposition on the part of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the, and, and the others was based upon their jealousy, but it was also based upon this other reality. They wanted to maintain peace with Rome. And so... If Jesus became too vocal and if Jesus became too well-known and if Jesus becomes too successful, they are afraid that Jesus might lead the people into some kind of revolt against Rome. And if it did, it would bring a very bloody and a very painful, a very horrible crackdown. And they would lose the peace they had. They had a kind of peace. They were able to do their thing, 
they were under control, they were being dominated and ruled, but they were able to do their thing. And so, why do you think it is that the people said to, the, to, to Jesus, Jesus, tell your disciples to quiet down. It wasn't because they were trying to sleep. It wasn't because the, the decibel, le- decibel level was too high and he was breaking the sound ordinances. It wasn't because, they, because it was a nuisance. It was because they were like, no, 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 keep this down. We don't want to... to, 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 to to rock the boat here. We don't want to create any waves. We don't want to start any trouble. And Jesus weeps here because they are doing what they did in the Old Testament. They're doing it again. God is offering them real peace, true peace, genuine peace, authentic peace. Peace on God's terms. And they're rejecting it for the peace of the tyranny that's all around them because it's, that's easier. Isn't it true that sometimes there are easy answers in your life that, are, that, that don't really answer the problem, but they are short-term, easy, quick fixes, and they're sometimes a lot simpler, and sometimes we embrace those in favor of things that are, that, that are real answers and real cures and real remedies and real transformations that will take a little time, maybe a little blood, sweat, and tears, a little pain, but once you go through that and get through that, you've got something. But we like the quick, easy solution. So they were comfortable. They, they had become comfortable with that, the peace of tyranny and in turn reject the peace of God. And the peace that God offers is not simply the absence of war or the absence of conflict. In fact, true peace in any situation is not simply that. The Hebrews use this word shalom, and the word shalom becomes erene in the New Testament Greek, and it, 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 it's, it's a concept, it's, a, it's an idea of peace from God's perspective that's much, much deeper than just, you know, you leave me alone, I leave you alone. Not I mean, you know, sometimes in your family, it's like, you don't bother me, I don't bother you. Is that peace? That's called coexisting. That's called surviving. Can, do you thrive that way? Is, is, there, is there joy in that? Just don't, don't bother my stuff, I won't bother your stuff. Don't talk to me, I won't talk to you. Just leave, let me do my thing, I'll let you do your thing. Some of our marriages are like that. We have these unspoken agreements to, 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 to leave each other alone, not because we're in, deeply in love, but because we just say, just, do your, just be, be your messy self and I'll be my messy self, and, and at least we can live in peace. But I ask you, is that peace? Is it peace to just say, hey, you know, is it peace just because I, I'm feeling no conflict and feeling no pain and having no, 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 no struggle? See, shalom is much more comprehensive and much deeper than that. And when you are contending for the peace that God gives, understand this, that God wants to grant you shalom. God wants to grant you a rene. He wants to grant you a peace that is a systemic peace, a peace that is comprehensive. It's deeper, it's deeper even than just well-being in every area of, of, of our lives. It is one of the greatest blessings that we can wish on somebody. So when we say shalom, or you can say it in English, it's okay, you don't have to even say it. You can say, we can, sometimes as Christians, we do what they do in, in, in liturgical churches. They say, they call it passing the peace. And sometimes you might just want to say, you know, peace be unto you. And then you could be really liturgical, saying, also, peace be with you and also with you. Or you can say, peace, my brother, you know, however you want to do it. Peace, you know, what's up? Peace. But that's the greatest blessing you can offer me, is to wish upon me and to speak over me the peace of God. I'm talking about the real peace. Because shalom, it does mean the absence of strife. 
It means also well-being. It means completeness. It, it denotes wholeness and harmony and fulfillment. Safety. In, in the Hebrew context, there was, sa- there was safety involved. Justice. Just and equitable economics in, in, in the Hebrew culture. Shalom. And so, there are a lot of ways that we seek peace outside of God in our own lives. In our culture. Corporately as people in this day and age. Now, let's just talk for a moment about the peace that God offers. And it comes to us on a few different levels. Number one, when we talk about the peace that God offers, number one, there is, the, there is first of all, and this... This lays the foundation for peace on every other level. Peace with God. You can have no other peace in God until you have peace with God. Uh, Any lack of peace that we feel in any other area of our world, it will be attributable to the lack of peace with God. That's why one of the reasons why folks are so crazy in the world. One of the reasons why... Life on the street is so rough. One of the reasons why our community is in such shambles, in all communities, really, is because, you know, people look at, you know, what, you know your community, every community, that does, where, where if Jesus is not, the, not Lord, not the head, then everywhere, because it, it will always stem from the lack of peace with it. Why are people crazy? Why are people out of control? Why do people do all of the, the things they do? You see, we were created for this one thing. We were created in the image of God, and we were created to be in communion and relationship with our Creator. And when we have lost that connection, when, then, then we find that we're broken. We lose our peace. We lose our sense of well-being. And what ha- the truth of the matter is, I don't care how you feel about it. I don't care what your experience is. I don't care what your opinion is. I'm going to tell you this. This is a truism. Without God, nothing works. Oh, you, you can make things. You can patch things up and make things work, but without God, nothing works. And all the places and the spaces that we, where we go looking for and searching for peace, sooner or later, all of them will come up short. All of them will fail you. And I, I wish I could get, uh, I wish I had somebody this morning who could just testify to the fact that when we look for peace in all the wrong places, we ultimately find ourselves bankrupt and bereft of any blessing. We find ourselves empty and sitting there alone, because we tried to find peace in places where God... How many of you know what I'm talking about? I, I wonder if there are witnesses in the house this morning. With God, everything is brought into perspective in our lives. But the problem is that we can really get used to this lack of peace in our world, and we can ignore this inner longing. Some of you, this will resonate with you, because you're used to... the the craziness, you're used to the discontinuity, you're used to the, 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 the technical word would be enmity, the, 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 uh, the breach in your relationship. You're used to feeling like God is mad at you. You're used to feeling like you have no connection with your Creator. You are accustomed to it. That's the way you, have, that's the way you roll. That's the way you have functioned. That's, and you have built uh, various mechanisms in your life to protect you from those feelings. And, to, and, and you've gone about in your own way to try to deal with that issue the way that you think you know how. Because, you know, it's like people that live in a war zone, and for some people, a war zone, it's there, there are communities that have become like this. Because there's some, there's some, some, of you live, some, some of you have lived in neighborhoods where the sound of gunfire is a, is a frequent occurrence. Some of you know what gun, when you, so when you hear a gunshot, you know the difference between gunshots and a firecracker. So when you hear a gunshot, you jump on the floor. 
and then you, and you, you wait about two seconds and you get back up. Because you've heard that. And you're used to helicopters hovering over your house. Now, I live, near, I live near the 405 and the 110 freeways by the intersection there. And so in the mornings, uh, weekday mornings around five, 6 o'clock, between 6 and 7, you can always tell if there's an accident on the freeway because you'll hear these, in not, you know, a, little bit, a little bit away from now, but enough to where it's annoying, you'll hear like usually a helicopter, two or three, just hovering. They're not police helicopters, they're news helicopters. And then I'll turn on the TV and they'll say, over here in Normandy on the 405, there's a, there's a sick alert, you know. So, oh, okay, yeah, that's what you guys, that go away, you know. But we, you know that sound of, you know the police helicopter sound when they go, they go around. Some, there's some people that might be, I've, I've never experienced that, I don't know what that's like. Some of us say, okay, you're used to that sound, you're used to the frequent sirens, woo! You're used to gunshots, you're used to noise, and it's like people in a war zone, people that are living in, in various countries where, in, in, where there have been wars and uprisings and, and civil unrest and, and, and civil war. They're used to hearing things blow up, they're used to, to, to hearing gunshots, they're used to that kind of stuff, and people become desensitized to it, to the lack of peace. They become desensitized to the fact that we, I'm living in a crazy world here, in a crazy situation, and so when I hear gunshots, I just duck and go on about my business. I do. <laughs> this thing, I like this thing. It's pretty sturdy. <laughs> but, and it's like that. We're, we're used to living in a spiritual war zone. We're used to living in a world of craziness. We're, you, we become accustomed to living in this, in, this, in, this, in, this, in this zone of being out of sync with God. But Jesus puts us back into right relationship with our Creator. Jesus restores the peace that was broken by sin. Ephesians 2 says this, As for you, you were dead in your, trans- in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live in the way you followed, uh, when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Theological picture that Paul is painting here. People that are out of relationship with God, they are objects of wrath. We're not created to, to, to be that, and we're not destined to stay that, but outside of God we are. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. God has made us alive. God has restored the peace. That's why Romans 5, 1 says... It says this, that being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Literally, it says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with God. That means it's been made right with God. I've got peace with you. Our relationship is harmonious. Our relationship is positive. Our relationship is interactive. Our relationship is devoid of strife and, 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 and enmity. And I'm not mad at you and you're not mad at me. We're walking in love and unity and we can get things done together. And we walk in that blessing. And Jesus brings, brings us into peace by bringing us from the enemy's side onto God's side. Mark Winter wrote this. He said, in the New Testament, the word for peace means to reconcile or to join. There were... One of the things that happens around the world on the part of missionaries is one of the great challenges in missionary endeavor. But one of the most useful tools is to translate the Bible into the language of the indigenous people that you are ministering to. And it's difficult because languages don't always translate and, you know, mesh so easily. And some languages don't have as 
broad of, or, uh, of a range of expression. Some things we might say in English, unless we can find a way to, to say it properly, it doesn't make sense. And um, there was this one uh, group of translators who were working hard to find a, a, the word for peace in this tribal language. And there was this native who was working with them, and he came up with a combination of words that captured the concept. And this was the, the, the combination of words that, that worked to translate into this language. A heart that sits down. A heart that sits down. For this particular tribe, for this particular culture, those words help them to understand the concept of peace. And for us, I think that when our hearts are able to sit down with Jesus, with God through His Son, that's when we find peace. Peace with God. Peace with God. Now, then there's what, and that's the starting point, but then there's what the peace with God gives us in this and what peace with God gives us then is the peace of God, or we would say peace within. Somebody said this, they said, my therapist told me the way to achieve true inner peace is to finish what I start. He said, so, so far today, he said, I've finished two bags of, of uh, Cheetos and a chocolate cake. I am starting to feel better already. Philippians 4, 4 through 7, these, the words in this passage ring, have a ring of familiarity with many of us because we often quote part of this passage. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. He says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. And he says, And the peace of God, verse 7, Romans 4, 7, the peace of God, this is not the peace with God. You've got that, but now, since you've got peace with God, you can go to God with your problems and your needs and your concerns, your anxieties, you can present them, and when you take them to Jesus, what happens is, then the peace of God, th that he says, transcends or surpasses all understanding. In other words, it don't make no sense. Some of you know, y your relatives think you're crazy because you're not freaking out. Because when you lost your job, they think you're crazy because you you got bills and you're not pulling your hair out. They think you, you're freaking out because you, you're going to church and still serving God when so many things have gone wrong in your life. And people around you say, if that was me, I would have just totally bailed. It's a peace that passes understanding. He says that will keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say that God will rescue you from all of your troubles in the moment. But what he promises us is that in the midst of whatever we go through, whatever we deal with in life, God will give us a peace that transcends all understanding, that, that, that overarches, that, that extends over, that, that is beyond human understanding while we go through the pain and while we're dealing with the struggle and while we're dealing with the suffering and in the midst of the, of, of the, the, the crisis in our lives, God gives us the peace of God. Somebody put it like this, when God really wants to teach us about peace, he takes us out into the storm. And some of us have been in this, we've been in the storm, we've been in the rain, we've been through the sorrow, we've been through the pain, we've been through the struggle. But for many of us, we learned that that's where we found the peace of God, because we had the peace with God. Peace is a fruit of the Spirit, and when we allow the Spirit to plant seeds in us, and as we're filled daily with the Spirit, right? We keep in step with the Holy Spirit as we keep that relationship going. We're able to have that peace that Paul writes about here in Philippians 4 that passes all understanding. So people look at it and say, I don't understand what's going on. Okay, so there's the peace 
peace with God brings about the peace of God, and then it brings about something else. Peace with others. Hello. Because Jesus gives us this example of forgiveness and our awareness of his forgiveness towards us and through the power of the Spirit, we're able to practice forgiveness and it is through forgiveness that we're enabled to live at peace with others around us. And this isn't always an, an instant or an automatic thing, but it's something that we work at and strive towards and labor towards because it's what God wants for us and from us. And we do this in partnership with God and we work at it, and we, especially within the context of the church. We need, we need to make sure we work on that and we make peace our goal and our aim. Paul in Ephesians 4 says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And then there's peace with creation. And it's an area that some Christians are just coming to, kind of, coming to peace with because Christian theology understands that there is a battle and, and a struggle that goes on throughout the entirety of creation because of sin. Christian theology would maintain that a lot of the, a lot of the problems, a lot of the uh, natural problems, there are things that are, are, that's, that, that are crazy about the planet. There are disasters and there are, there are very hostile forces that really have to do with things that were released because of the fall. And there's a curse that's on creation. In Genesis 3, we see that, right? And so while sin brought the curse, the kingdom of God brings the blessing. And we believe that we can begin to make peace with creation and that we learn to care for that part of the creation as, as indeed we were given a cultural mandate in, even in Genesis to cultivate and to to, to subdue the earth, and that is not to abuse it and to misuse it selfishly and recklessly, but to, to redeem it and to use it for the glory of God and to restore what we can and learning to care for creation. And so when we start to follow God and when we start to, 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 to heed His ways, we, we will, if we follow God for real, if we are in the kingdom, we're going to give up greed and selfish ambition. And that opens the way for us to begin to live at peace in the environment, because a lot of the abuses environmentally that we've seen historically, they stem not from some deep, pure, altruistic desire to, uh, to do something, but basically from greed and lust and people's desire to, to gain unlimited wealth with no concern for the planet or the creation or the people that live in that creation. So we're going to engage in fracking under your house, and we don't care if you turn on the water spigot and you, you, you get natural gas. Just light, light a match. That, you can cook under that. But we're called upon to care for creation in partnership with the Creator. So those are the various realms, those are several areas of peace. That, that one, the overarching dy dynamic of peace, the peace of God, and then peace with God and peace with others. And peace, we live at peace with the creation and, and the whole bit. But as we kind of wind this to a close this morning, let's zero back in on what we, where we started come back around to what, where we began. This, this phrase, which is the title of our message, the terms of peace. The terms of peace. So you won't go to sleep, just say it. The terms of peace. 
Jesus says to them, he says, if you, only you had known the day of God's visitation, if only you had known, in one translation, the terms of peace, if you'd only known the terms of peace that God has set forth, but you didn't, and so therefore, it's hidden from your eyes, you have missed the book. Man, it's a terrible thing to, to, to miss it, isn't it? Oh my goodness, you know, and, and uh, they say opportunity knocks but once, and thank God that the grace of God and the mercy of God and common grace in life is that sometimes opportunity... Other opportunities will come by. Opportunity knocks but once, but you've got to open the door. But it's a sad thing. Man, can you imagine you've saved up for, for, for two or three years to go on a transatlantic cruise, and you've got to get to New York to get the Queen Mary too or whatever, just hypothetically speaking. And, you, and, of course, there's a sailing time, but you've got to fly from L.A., and you, um, and you, get, you make it to the plane in L.A., you get on the L.A., and you fly to, to New York to, say, uh, Kennedy or LaGuardia, and you get off the plane, and... You, get, you try to hail a cab to get you to the docks, you know, wherever the ship is boarding from. But the problem is your, flank, your plane got diverted uh, due to bad weather, and, you got, and then it turned around, and you had to switch planes, and you were like three or four hours later, and you had some cushion built in, but all your cushion was gone. That's so why you always have some margin, right? And then you get there, and you're trying to get to there, and you, and you get a cab, and you, and, and you realize the boat's leaving at 5 p.m., and uh, it's 4.45 and you're not supposed to just walk on there, right? You've got to get processed and all that stuff. And you're running, you're running, and you get to the dock. And as you, as, you, as, you, as you drive up, the cab drives up, you open the door, and you see, you hear, and you see the, slip, the ship slowly slipping out of the dock, heading out to sea. Man, what an empty feeling. Some of you ever missed a plane? I, I think I've only missed, I don't know if I've ever missed a plane, because you guys know me, I'm always on time, right? You missed a what? You missed the ship? Really? That, that, was, that was God all up in this. You missed the ship. And did you see it leave? Or did you, did you miss it by such a wide margin that you just came to an empty dock? <laughs> I know. Help, Lord. You know, it's like if you miss, if you miss the, the Metro Blue Line or something, you, there's another one coming. But they, they, that, that ship don't sail every 10 minutes. You know, that idea of something in life that is an opportunity making its way out and you have totally missed it. And that's the way we are about a lot of things, isn't it? And so he says, but you didn't know the terms of peace. And there's one other place in the New Testament where that, that phrase, the things that make for peace, is used. And that's in Luke 14. And there's a parable here. And Jesus says in Luke 14, 31 and 32, he says, uh, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king, he will, not first sit, will he not first sit out and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? In other words, you count the cost, right? If he is not able, okay, we don't, we don't have the, the means to do this. He says he will send the delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. And then Jesus goes on to say this to give them the moral of the story, the punchline of the parable. He says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus connects this discipleship dynamic of giving up, surrendering everything we have to the terms of peace that he has established the treaty that he is extending, the deal that he has extended to his followers. 
It's like a king, if the king realizes we can't beat him, so we better go and make peace and find out what the deal is, what are the stipulations, what's, what, what are the requirements, what do they want. Likewise, we go to God. God, what are the terms of peace? How do I make peace with you and find peace in my life? How do I get my life straightened out? How do I, I get beyond the melees and the craziness and, the, and, 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 and the, the, the nonsensicalness of my life to a place where I can experience your peace, peace with you and peace with myself and peace in, in the world around? How do I get rid of this, this dull ache in my soul that plagues me every day of my life? Uh, how do I get rid of this gnawing pain that keeps me awake at night? And I'm not talking about reflux, but I'm talking about, I'm talking about sin flux. Terms of peace, the same phrase translated things that make for peace in Luke 19. Jesus is saying to this, this rather, he's saying if you only knew the terms of peace that the king is offering... The terms of peace that Jesus gives here in 1433 are this. He says, here's the terms of peace. That you give up everything. That you give up everything. In other words, what does he mean? Some of you, you know, start to squirm in your seat a little bit. What does he mean? Is he getting ready to take another offering? What is he talking about? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus is talking about. He says, it means the terms of peace is that you give up everything that you, everything else that you've been relying on to give you peace. You give it up. You surrender all your toys, all, all the things. And in, in, in our real lives, it doesn't mean that you have a big yard sale and divest yourself of all your belongings. But it means this. There are things you've been depending upon to give you peace that will not give you peace. And so you must depend upon them no longer. You push them aside. That means you give these things over to the king and allow him in exchange to give you true peace. It means you give over him the ways that you have, have, have tried to create your own security. Just like Israel in the Old Testament. They said, wow, if we can hook up with Egypt, they got horses, man. I hook up with you, you got money. She got connections. Give up all the things you've been trying to use to create your own security. I don't care whether it's your, your prestige, your status, your ego, your good looks, or whatever it is. Give it up. It doesn't mean that you stop locking your door, your house at night, or that you, you, know, that you forfeit your paycheck. Oh, no, boss, I couldn't receive this. It's a dumb joke. I always did. I was, I was, when I was working for this one organization, I was... And I was doing music. I was trying, and so it, like you know, when I was doing Promise Keepers back in the '90s, we would go off for the weekend. And at the after the last thing, Bugs, who was the two, the manager, the road manager, yeah, his name is Bugs. Well, that's what they call him. He would always have this stack of envelopes. You know, that was you know that was the envelope. You know, they were good envelopes back in those days. And so I would I would always do this stupid joke. I said, Oh no, Bugs, I I, so I, I can't receive that. And he said, Fine. <laughs> I said, no, 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 second thought, oh, yeah. But he, God isn't saying give up those things. He's not saying to leave the key in your car, but you give everything over to the king, and rather than de depending upon your security system or your bank account or your IRA or your, or, your, or your resources or whatever, you give everything over to the king and begin to depend on him for your security and for your peace, knowing that he is the only one that can give you true peace. This is the issue. The issue at hand here is the issue of trying to find peace on our own terms versus receiving the terms of peace that Jesus offers. Do you get, it? Do you, do you get what I'm talking about today? 
Because that's the crux of the, of the matter. That, that, is the, that is the core issue at stake today. Jesus is saying, you guys in Jerusalem, you missed the po- point and you missed the boat. You've been trying to secure... You have, you have a, a, a nice homeostasis. You have a kind of a, a balance here where everything is, kind of, everything is everything, whatever that means, right? Everything is cool. And it's not cool because it's right. It's just cool because it's quiet. It's not cool because it's, it's, it's harmonious. It's cool because you don't, they don't bother us. We don't bother. We go to the temple. We do our thing. The Roman soldiers look at us. And if we step out of line, they'll snap our heads off. He says, you, you've trying to, you, you're relying upon that peace. And you've missed the fact that God has sent the king of the Jews to you. He sent me into your midst, the son of man. I've come and I've preached the love of God to you. I have done miracles in your midst. I have healed the sick. I've raised the dead. I've cast demonic spirits out of of your children and out of your your, your friends and your brothers and sisters. I have come proclaiming the message of the kingdom of God and you have missed it. You have totally misunderstood it. And and you're still looking to me to be who you, some of you, some of you want to make Jesus in your own image. Some of you have a, you want Jesus to be your Santa Claus. You want Jesus to be your boyfriend. You want Jesus to be your big daddy. You want Jesus to be something other than the ruler and king of your life. Other than the sovereign Lord. Other than the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You want Jesus to be the paymaster who doles out the bucks. Lord, I need another hundred dollars. Here you go. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset it. He said, as you can have it your way. And Jesus says, no, I am the king and I'm the one who extends the terms of peace. And he says, you guys have missed it. And on our terms of peace, on my terms, Lord, I want control. Jesus says, you've got to surrender control. I say, I, I say Lord, I've got to turn my, on my terms. It's like... I want to bring to the table my solutions and my answers. And Jesus says, no, you're going to have to take God's answers and God's solutions. Because the scripture says that, that my ways are not your ways and your ways are not my ways because my ways are higher than your ways. Even when your ways aren't evil and wrong per se, they still, I'm on another level. On our own terms, it's all about the kingdom of this world and everything is couched in the context of this this reality, and Jesus says, no, 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 it's not about that. It's about the kingdom of God where Jesus is king and where Jesus rules and reigns and where you come under his dominion and his lordship. The terms of peace from our perspective is it's about my strength and if I could just get a little stronger. Some of you are thinking, man, if I could just get stronger, some of you need to get weaker. Your strength has become your Achilles heel. Your strength has become your problem because you think that because you have a, some of it is a strength of will or a strength of attitude or strength of, a strength, some of you think that your physical strength or your mental strength or your mental prowess or your intellect or all of these things, your emotional strength, your, you know, we talked about it last week about the, your stubbornness, all these things, you need to give all that up and realize that it is not your strength. Paul came to understand this in Paul's story in the New Testament really is indicative of this because Paul was one of those guys who thought he had it all together and through the old covenant as a Jewish believer, as a stellar figure in the Jewish religion, thought that he had everything figured out and he was out on a mission to prove it by killing those who were proclaiming the message of Jesus and Jesus got a hold of him on the road to Damascus and turned his life. Jesus broke him down, knocked him off his horse, blinded him, 
said, listen, I got something for you to do, son, and you got to go over to Cornelius' house until I give you further orders, and you get up and go. And Paul came in the place of his life, even after he got it all together with God, and he was, was, God was using him, and people were coming to Christ, and he was planting churches and going around traveling and, and preaching the gospel. There were, there were some things, there was a couple of areas of brokenness in his life. There were some things that God just wouldn't fix for him right away. God left some things in his life, and he came to realize this. God left some of this mess in my life so that I could come to realize that it ain't all about me and my strength. And, it, and you know what? Let me tell you something, child of God. You don't have to have all your stuff together for God to use you. Everything, you don't have to be happy in every area of your life, in every moment of your life. You don't have to be together in everything. You can have pain, and God can be powerful. Because what happens is, as Paul said, I understand now. This is the way it goes. God said this to me. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. If you are too strong, I can't show how strong I am because it's all about you. And I'm grateful. I'm not, I'm not for a Christian, a model of the Christian life that is just all about like wimpy weakness because we ought to be strong. We ought to, the Bible says be strong in the, Lord, in the Lord and in his mighty power. On the other hand, we got to the place where we realized, man, what can we be real about the fact, yeah, I got some pain. I got some weaknesses. I got, uh, this, this area of my life is a struggle. This part of my character is a struggle. This part of my temperament is a struggle. This, this, I've got some ways of thinking, ways of responding. I've got some emotional wounds. I grew up with some stuff that, because I'm X amount of years old, see, I don't see, I learned not to say my age anymore. That it, 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 it didn't just go away, but I learned that in the midst of that, because we, we're all, John Legend said, we're all ordinary people, right? We then, but we're also all broken people, and we're all hurting people, and we're all struggling people, and we're all searching people. But, but God said to Paul, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Hallelujah. I'm so glad about that. I'm so glad that, because I, I grew up around people, and it was like, if, if you weren't perfect, God couldn't use you. And if, if you weren't always prayed up, and if you did the least little thing wrong, and if you, you had to always come with this this aura of competency and I like competency and I like auras and I like being cool and I like looking good and I like I like I like being on top of my game and all that stuff because I'm human and you are too but I learned to realize it's not all about that God will use it and so the terms of peace so that we come to realize that and we can lay it all down lay it all down lay it all down that's the paradox that's the irony of the gospel for Palm Sunday amen and so, as I wrap this this morning, this day in the Sunday school, pictures of the donkeys and the branches and Hosanna, blessed the everybody's smiling. It's a moment, it's a mere moment of victory, and some of you have had those in your life. That, that high is, is a moment of, uh, it's a shallow victory, because in that moment you've got peace. That sexual conquest in that moment is a shallow victory, because it provides you a momentary companionship without dealing maybe with all of the intricacies of a committed relationship in the terms that God has, has provided. But it gives you that momentary peace. It's a shallow victory. That, 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 that thing that you've done to get over momentarily, to, 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 to the strings you've pulled to get what you wanted, whether the strings were pulled were right or not, it was a shallow and hollow and empty momentary victory. In this moment... As they pray, they're saying the right things because he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And he is blessed. And to cry out, God's Lord, save us, that's the right thing to cry out. But over the next week, Jesus will walk out before us the real solution to their needs. See, they, for them, this could have been it right here. Come to Jerusalem, let's put a crown on this dude's head, make him king, and let's take over. 
He says, no, it ain't time yet. Wait till Friday and I'll show you what I got to do. Wait till Friday and I'll show you how this thing is done. I'll show you how God the Father intends to deal with your problem. And over the next week, Jesus will walk out the real solution to their needs. Whether they like it or not, whether they understand it or not, whether they know it or not, they cried, Hosanna. And Hosanna means what? Basically, Lord, save us. They didn't have a clue as to what that meant and what they wanted to be saved from. Well, they knew what they thought. They felt needs ain't always your real needs. Save us from the Romans. Save us from national disgrace. Save us from embarrassment. Save us from them folks controlling us. Save us from people telling us what to do. Save us from these funny-looking Roman soldiers looking, glaring at us all the time. And Jesus says, you know what, that's a problem. And, that's a real, and I care about that problem, but that ain't your real problem. So you think in your life as we close this out, think about the things that you, there's some irritants and some things in your life, and they probably do need to be changed long term. But that may not be your real problem, because your real problem exists on a spiritual level, on a spiritual plane but we, are, we become preoccupied with that intermediate level. Oh, God, it's the economy. Yeah, the economy's messed up and needs, needs some work, but you know what? The, my economy needs to be healed by the, by, by the power. My, my heart and my mind need to be fixed. Oh, God, it's, it's my marriage. Yeah, but it, your marriage needs some help, but you've got to get right with me first. You've got to get yourself together, and you've got to get sincere and come clean before me before I can do anything in that. It's not your family. It's not your people's. Yeah, your people's is messed up. But that's not the core problem. The core problem is your relationship with me. So as I close, I want to ask you this question. Will you, are you willing to accept the terms of peace that the king extends to you? Are you willing to surrender? Or are you one who remains intent upon retaining control? That's the question. That's the core. Jesus says, Terms of peace have to do with have to do with surrender. The king says you got to give it up. And if you're smart, when you realize that you'll never win in your own strength, under your own steam, then what you do is you say, "Okay, God, I give up." How many of you know? How many of you can feel what I'm talking about today? You know what? Some see some of you. There might be one or two, maybe three, four of you. Some, some of you, what is he talking about? But there's some of you that really, really man, it wasn't to the place where I said, God, I quit. Okay, I, I ain't smart. I ain't. There was this character that Al Franken used to play on Saturday Night Live, Stuart Smalley. He was perpetually addicted to uh, uh, self-help uh, 12-step groups. He was in 12-step groups for everything. Alcoholics Anonymous. Eaters Anonymous. Domino's Anonymous, whatever. You know. But so he was always mouthing affirmations. And he would say, he said, because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I can't realize, Lord, I ain't good enough, I ain't strong enough, I ain't smart enough, and some people like me, but probably not as many as I hoped. So I give up. I lay it all down. How many of you ready to lay it on? Stand, let's stand together. Let's stand. Let's stand. And we're just we're going to pray and close out this morning. But let's 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 agree together over the next three or four minutes to allow the Spirit of the Lord to do something. Let's allow, allow God to do because what was 
what we talked about today, it demands a response from some of us. It demands some kind of response from all of us. If nothing more than a response, okay, God, I hear your word. Help me to understand how it applies to me going forward. For some of us, you, you know in, in the moment God is speaking to you. And so there, there are two levels of response that I want to address. That's what